Episode 45, 4th of July, 2011. Apollo 15 Command Module Pilot, Al Worden. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Gurubir Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org. Probably the most scientifically demanding Apollo mission, Apollo 15, was launched on 26th of July 1971 on a two-week mission. Al Worden, in the command module, orbited the moon for 75 orbits, whilst Dave Scott and James Irwin explored the southeastern edge of Mare Imbrium on the moon's surface. Apollo 15 launched with the heaviest payload of all Apollo missions and included the first moon rover, a sub-satellite launched from Apollo 15 into lunar orbit, and a collection of science instruments, including a high-resolution camera to map the lunar surface. To coincide with the 40th anniversary, on July the 26th, 2011, writing with Francis French, Al Worden is publishing his autobiography. In this interview, recorded in London on 22nd of May, Al talks about his test pilot career before joining NASA, the Apollo 15 mission, the covers incident. These were stamped postcards franked on the day of launch and again on the day of return, for subsequent public sale. His NASA career and his autobiography, Falling to Earth. In addition to bringing back 77 kilograms of lunar material, high-resolution images of the Moon from lunar orbit, and images of the zodiacal light, solar corona, and gegenschein, Al Worden conducted a 38-minute spacewalk, half an hour after they fired the engine for their journey home from lunar orbit. You became an astronaut in 1966. Yeah. Do you remember how you found out? Was it a phone call, a letter? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Precisely. Uh, I got a phone call from Dick Slayton, who okay. was the boss. Uh-huh. And he's just, it was very simple. He was a very straightforward, right to the point guy. The minute he got on the phone, he said, how'd you like to come down and join us? And that was it. Just like that. I said yes. <laughs> and of course, all the uh, testing leading up to that must have been quite demanding. Um, well, I was teaching. I wasn't actually flight testing too many airplanes, but I was teaching at the test pilot school. In fact, I was here at Farnborough in 64. Mm-hmm. I came over in the winter of 63, and I was here all of 64. Mm-hmm. And we were due to graduate in the end at the end of November of 64. Mm-hmm. And uh, the week before we graduated, uh, the U.S. Test Pilot School came over for a visit, and Chuck Yeager was the head of the school then. Uh-huh. And when he got off the airplane, he came to me and said, "I want you to come back and teach at the school." I was really it, it, it was a big, big surprise to me because Chuck Yeager is a pilot, but he's not much of an academic. <laughs> so I was quite surprised that he wanted me to come back, and I said, "Well, I don't know." I said, "I, you know, I've got commitments over here." Uh, we all had assignments out of the school, and my assignment was to go to Bedford. So I would have been at Bedford for two years, and that was just at the time when they were beginning to 
really developed the vertical takeoff mm. technology. In fact, the Harrier was already flying. I saw Bill Bedford fly the first Harrier at Farmville Air Show back in 64. So they were already flying it somewhat, but they were doing an awful lot of work on that. And I thought that would be a really exciting thing to do. But Chuck Harrier comes and said, hey, I need you to go back and teach at the test pilot school. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I've got this two-year commitment. He said, well, I'll see what I can do about it. And uh, the U.S. government kind of dug their heels in. And they, were, they were very concerned about cutting my tour short because they want to keep the relationship going. And, uh, and, and surprisingly enough, it was the British that said, oh, you got to go, you got to go, don't right. stay here. Uh, so my so the commandant, Group Captain Watts, uh, went to the MOD, and the MOD went to the uh, Foreign Secretary, and, and the British agreed to the whole thing, and it took it took two months for the Americans to agree to it, which I know is kind of funny. <laughs> Finally, the Secretary of State got in the act and said, yeah, okay, come on back. So when the school, when we graduated from school, I went to, uh, I worked at the embassy downtown for a while. Uh, so I went back and taught for a year and a half until they had the, uh, the until they had the selection programs. So I was teaching all, uh, the flight side of it was, it was mostly space oriented. Uh -huh. We're doing, uh, we're teaching X-15 type landings, unpowered landings, we're teaching, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. <coughs> and uh, Zoom flights where we would go as high as we could go in an F-104 get a little, what we would call zero gravity, zero G, which is, no, there's no such thing, but we'd call it that. I was talking to one of your colleagues, Buzz Aldrin, and he oh, yeah. told me something interesting. He, in 1950, applied for the Rhodes Scholarship mm. uh, twice, mm. and he didn't get it. Then he ended up going to West Point and then right. serving in the Air Force he graduated from West Point, and uh, he must—he was there before because I think he graduated in '51. That's right. Yeah, but he, interesting, said that he ended up becoming an astronaut because he failed to get into uh, to be a road scholar. Did you have any uh, failures or uh, coincidences which made you uh, on the right road for the Apollo program? You know, I, that's hard to answer uh, because I never thought about being an astronaut. Mm. Uh, that was not my goal. My goal was to be a good test pilot, right. and I was on that path. Uh, I flew to fighter squadron for about six years in Washington, D.C. Uh, then they wanted to send me to headquarters because of some things I had done at the squadron that Air, Air Defense Command really liked, and so they wanted me to come up there and teach this stuff to all the other squadrons. Well, after two, two years, uh, you know, it's time to go somewhere. Mm -hmm get out of school, and these two guys came to me, they, they, they started talking to me about, I should, I should just go ahead and apply to the test pilot school, you know, that's, that's the thing I ought to do. So I applied, and the list for the test pilot school came out, and I was not on it, and I was, I was disappointed, right? Because yeah. I thought, oh, geez, I, all this work and all this stuff I've been doing, you know, now I'm, you know, there, there must be some really good pilots out there. About two weeks later, after the list came out, I got a call from the Secretary of the Air Force, and he said, I guess you've probably seen the list for Edwards. And I said, yeah, and he said, I guess you also saw you weren't on it. Yeah. Well, he said, you were at the top or very close to the top of the list, but we didn't pick you for Edwards because we want to send you to England to the Empire Test Pilot School. We've had uh, pilots over there. We've had exchange pilots over there uh, for quite some years now. Um, but they've never really done very well in academics. Right. And you just got out of college and you got all this flying behind you. We just thought you'd be a great candidate for the Empire Test Pilot School. Yeah. 
So I said, well, okay, do you, do you want to go? And I said, oh, absolutely. So that's what got me over here at the Empire Test Pilot School. Um, and all that time, I never thought about being an astronaut. That was not my goal. My goal was to be a good test pilot. And, uh, and, and it's like I tell kids when I talk to them. You know, I talk to middle, high school, uh, college kids, and I say, you know, the thing about whatever you want to do with your life, you just do the best you can at it because when you get to the end of the educational part of your career mm -hmm. and you've done really well, you're going to find that a lot of other doors open, mm -hmm. not just the one you're looking at, but there might be other doors open. And that's kind of what happened to me because I had all that behind me and then all of a sudden in January of 65, NASA had a selection program. I always had this feeling that, that, that there are others that are, I know there are others that are better than me, okay? And then I get into the group, and uh, after a while, I begin to realize that they're not. <laughs> but but when you first went, it's like yeah. when I went to West Point, uh, uh, there were about eight hundred of us that, that that all showed up, you know, the first day, and uh, and I'm looking at all these guys, and I'm saying to myself, Oh man, these guys are the cream of the crop. They're the brightest. They're the best. I'm really going to have a hard time competing with these people. It took me about three months to figure out that they weren't one bit better than I was. And as a matter of fact, it turned out that I did my job better than most of them. Apollo 15, what were the key objectives for Apollo 15? Okay, Apollo 15 was basically uh, the most scientific flight in the program. Uh, we, were, we had an uprated spacecraft, uprated booster. Uh, we carried a lot of additional stuff with us that they never carried before. Was it one of the heaviest payloads? We were the heaviest. Okay. Uh, we carried the lunar rover, you know, the little electric car they drove, and we carried the scientific instrument module uh, into lunar orbit, which had two large cameras, had a mapping camera, had a high-resolution camera, had a number of remote sensing devices like microwave, x-ray, gamma ray, that kind of thing. And I had a little sub-satellite that we left in lunar orbit before it came back home. So it was a pretty packed kind of bay. Uh, we had to blow the hatch off before we got to lunar orbit to, to, to open it up to everything. But because of those two things, mm -hmm. we had to have an upgraded lunar module. Mm -hmm. It had to have additional fuel. And because of all that, we were very heavy launch. Right. Uh, but our, our objective was map the moon, for one thing. That was the first time we really mapped the moon. Yeah. I mapped about 25% of the moon. And took high resolution pictures of it. And David Jim with the lunar rover gave them great extended range, uh, so they could really traverse a, a wide area. The other thing about our flight, which was different, is that we landed at 28 degrees north on the equator. Now that that's quite a trick. Uh, I don't know if you realize it, but all the flights before ours landed in, in a band of about plus or minus 10 degrees to the equator. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, but uh, they did that because we knew the gravitational constants in that band. Well, we knew pretty well what the what the mass cons and, and the gravitational thing, you know, the forces around the equator. Because oh, we had a lunar orbiter and we had uh, two or three flights, and you know, uh, so we knew that pretty well. We didn't know anything about well, the gravitational constants at 28 degrees north. Uh, so that was another thing. We were really, we were really. Um, Forging into new territory when we flew, and you still landed within uh, two within two kilometers of the actual um, landing point. So it's oh pretty yeah, much oh yeah, it's yeah, pretty much dead on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they did a good job. You were the uh, command module mm -hmm. pilot. Amazingly, you were in lunar orbit for six days. 
Six days altogether. Yeah, 100 and 150 hours. About 75 revolutions. 75. Yeah, every two hours. You go around every two hours in the morning. No, that makes it's about sense. A, about an hour and a half here on Earth, but uh, lunar orbit's about two hours. How did you use, what did you do in, in that time? I ran the remote sensors. I uh, uh, ran the high-resolution camera, the mapping camera. Uh, I had a handheld camera to take uh, observational photographs of features on the moon. Um, I really knew the moon, the moon pretty well. I had a very, very, uh, had a great instructor, a guy by the name of Farouk Elbaz. You've probably heard the name. Uh, Farouk is just famous back there. He was uh, an Egyptian uh, petroleum geologist mm -hmm. uh, in Egypt. He came to the States and he got a job with Bell Labs, which was a very, which was a think tank kind of thing back mm -hmm. in those days. And they had a contract with NASA to teach orbital geology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're a wordsmith. <laughs> well, what do we, we call the study of rocks here on Earth? Geology. We call the study of rocks on the moon? Selenology? Well, they still call it geology for some reason. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy thing. Right. I mean, you know, but it should be. Yeah. It should be selenology or something. Moonology. Lunology, something. <laughs> uh, no, we still call it geology. But Farouk was a master at uh, the, the more of the large-scale features, like craters and, and, and fault zones and lava flows and that kind of thing. Really, I really got to the point where uh, discerning between a meteor impact and a volcanic eruption mm -hmm. became kind of second nature. Right? It's pretty easy. There were lots of lava flows on the moon. Right. You know, Schroeder's Plateau is just, they got lava flows going every which way. One of the things that I looked for uh, from lunar orbit was evidence of recent volcanic volcanism. Mm -hmm. And what I was looking for, cinder cones. Cinder cones are basically the last gasp of a volcanic eruption. And it's all where the light, tough, light rocks get blown up, they come back down, and they just settle right back over the vent tube. And they, and they form cinder cones with a hole in the top of it. Well, Farouk had suggested and, and, and kind of surmised that there would be some there, uh, although they were going to be difficult to see because from 60 miles, your eye only subtends a certain angle. You can't get any closer than that. What they didn't realize is that if I, if I look directly at something, I can't see it. But if I sweep it with my eyes, like night flying, mm -hmm. then you begin to see things that you wouldn't see ordinarily. You, you know, you get the rods and the combs working for you. Well, I discovered a whole field of cinder cones in the Taurus Littrow area, which I was overflying at the time. And when that data all got analyzed, uh, they actually changed the landing site for Apollo 17 to go there. And uh, just before you left, Lunar orbit. Mm -hmm. You obviously had to detach the LEM, and it went back down to mm -hmm. the moon. You also launched this lunar uh, satellite. Mm -hmm. Was that the first time that? Uh, That's the first time a satellite had been launched from a manned spacecraft in lunar mm -hmm. orbit. Uh, it was a, basically a cosmic particle uh, sensor, right. and it was solar powered, and uh, it was it had arms and it rotated, so it was kind of stable. Um, and uh, it was designed to be there for, it was, it was not a long-term thing. Right. Uh -huh. Because, well, one of the things they realized is that we didn't know the mass concentrations of the, uh, of the moon. 
what, what we call mass counts, which can really affect the trajectory around the moon. Mm. Uh, and they kind of thought that the mass counts were going to eventually pull that thing down and it was going to crash. Well, it stayed there. For, I understand it stayed there for a long time. Okay, so after that, you head off home, trans-Earth injection. Trans-Earth, yeah. Half an hour into that, you had to go out and get the film from these cameras you were telling right. me about. Well, yeah, we had to pick a time uh, on the way back home where I could go out and get the canisters from the uh, cameras. Mm. This was a pretty big operation. The, the, the high-resolution camera we had uh, had 1,100 feet of film, weighed 90 pounds. Uh, and I had to go out and get that and bring it back in because obviously the only thing that comes back is what's in the command module, so you got to get it in. So I went out and got that, and then I went out and got the mapping camera film, brought that in. And uh, yeah, I made another trip out there and just looked around. <laughs> that was kind of fun. You were out there for about half an hour, and you're still yeah. much closer to the, to the moon than the Earth. We're 50,000 miles to the side of the moon, yeah. And to see the Earth from that point. Well, to see the Earth and the Moon at the same time was the, was the mind blower. And were you able to see that in one view? Well, I had to look a little bit to one side to the other, yeah. but I could see I could look over there and see the Earth and look over there and see the Moon. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating place, place. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. And when you were in lunar orbit, when you look at the Moon at the night sky, it's very silvery white light. Mm -hmm. Is that the sensation you get from no. the lunar when orbit? When you're well? there, it's not that color at all. It's um, it's either gray or brown, depending on which direction you're looking. The surface of the moon reflects sunlight in strange ways. If you're looking at the surface and the sun is ahead of you, it's one color. And if you're looking away from the sun, it's another color. It just has something to do with the refraction of the light on the, on the surface of the camera, the surface of the moon. And, and and you'll see a lot of astronauts who've been there talk about the color that they saw on the surface of the moon. You know, sometimes they brown, they sometimes they gray. Uh, but um, I think when you put when that whole picture gets put together, you realize that they're either looking towards the sun or away from it when, oh, they, when, they, when they recognize it. And the other thing too that was kind of interesting to me is that when we look at the moon from here, we see those big dark circles, the, the, the meteor impact craters, mm -hmm. and they're dark. Mm -hmm. Okay, when you get up close, they're not really dark. What we're looking at is a difference in surface texture. Right. So those craters are much smoother than the surrounding, and the and the fractured rocks that surround these craters yeah. reflect the sunlight differently, and they look brighter and, right. and lighter in color. Yeah. And the smooth surface of the craters looks darker, but they're really pretty much the same color. So it's just relative. Yeah, it's all yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The high resolution camera was it always looking down at the moon? Yeah, we couldn't we couldn't point it anywhere back here. A little history on the high-resolution camera. That was a camera that was designed for the U-2 program, right. okay, uh, which was flown at 70,000 feet or something like that. Uh, the Air Force declared it obsolete before our flight, so we were allowed to take it. Uh, but there were some certain international sensitivities about us taking that kind of a high-resolution camera. Uh, and so we were, we, we were forbidden to, to point the camera at Russia, Seriously? as an example. Oh, yeah. Couldn't point it at Russia. My goodness. Well, we didn't want to anyway. We were there to take pictures of the moon. We, we didn't care about looking back here. But the other mapping camera, that was also looking only at the moon. The, map, the mapping camera, yeah. The mapping camera was a different, uh, different kind of camera. Uh, the high-resolution camera was what they call a ball-optical camera. It did not have uh, a shutter. 
Now the mapping camera was just a regular still camera, uh -huh. which you know rocked a little bit right. to take out the ground, the smear of the ground. Uh -huh. It also had a, um, a laser altimeter that recorded the, the height of the ground, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, height of the camera from the ground. Right. But I photographed about twenty five percent of the wood surface doing that. I know you had difficulty with um, the one of the parachutes doing uh, splashdown. Yeah. So, uh, do you ever come to understand what caused it? Yeah, oh yeah, we know. Um, we had maneuvering rockets on the command module, what we called reaction control system, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, the reaction control system for the command module that allowed us to come back through the atmosphere and maintain an attitude and all that mm -hmm. uh, was hypergolic fuel. Uh, hypergolic fuel is fuel, two different kinds of fuel, but when they when they meet, they explode. So if you feed them in a stream, you get combustion. Mm -hmm. Problem is that the, to make the hypergolic fuels that we know about are very corrosive and very toxic. What happened, once we got on all three parachutes, uh, the, the checklist called for me to vent all that fuel out so that if we hit something in the water and rupture the fuel line, it wasn't going to cause, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in danger, okay? Yeah. Well, it turned out the atmospheric conditions were just perfect that day for this to happen because the fuel went out and went right up the riser line into that parachute. And nylon is susceptible to almost anything, right. but that fuel just went, right. and we lost that chute. So, although it's a much harder impact, it was... No, not much harder. One lot. Our normal impact, as I recall, my numbers could be a little off, but as I recall, our normal impact would be about 28 feet per second, which is about the same as a parachute stance. Right. Okay? It's not, it's not, it's not bad. Uh, we lost one shoot, and I think our descent rate went up to 31 feet a second. So it really wasn't a big change. On the descent, I guess you start letting the air, the atmosphere, atmospheric air, into the mm -hmm. command module. And that must be the first time for two weeks that you actually breathe normal fresh air. We didn't really, didn't really get onto that until we opened the hatch right. on the surface. And then we really got that Pacific air. But yeah, you open the, you open the valve, when you get down, you know, we're five PSI inside. Um, and, and that's about the atmospheric pressure at 25,000 feet. So from there on down, you kind of open that, you know, you, 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 you let that pressure, you let that outside air come in. It's a matter of interest. Five psi. Is that the pressure inside the command module on the way back to Earth? Oh yeah, it's the, that's the pressure we had the whole flight. Right. And I guess we never used atmospheric pressure. We were at five psi, pure oxygen, which relates to atmospheric air at twenty-five thousand feet. There's about five psi oxygen at twenty-five thousand feet. Russians always landed on ground, on uh, mm -hmm. hard ground. Could the command module, instead of splashdown, if it landed over land, would it have, uh, would it have been strong, robust? They, they were, well, you have to have a different structure to do that. Uh, you can't, you just can't take uh, the hard uh, heat shield structure and bounce it on the ground. There was in the early program a plan to land the Apollo on the ground. Right. And they were going to land down in Texas. That was the plan. Oh, okay? Right. Down close to the manned spacecraft center. Uh, but they realized that in, in the first place, uh, in the area, the oceans are so much bigger than the continents that it gives you a much bigger landing zone than, than trying to land on land. Uh, if you land on, in, you land in the ocean, you can land anywhere. But yeah. If you land on land, you got to be pretty careful because you don't want to hit a mountain. 
right? <laughs> or you don't want to land in the middle of the city somewhere. Yeah. Or something. yeah. Uh, so that's why the U.S. went to the route of landing in the in, in the ocean. And the last thing I want to talk to you about is the um, autobiography. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be released in about five or six weeks. In, uh, right. Twenty sixth of July. Fortieth anniversary of. That's fortieth anniversary of our flight. I'll learn quite a lot about you when I read it. What did you learn when you wrote it? I have to be really honest with you. I, I might not have written the book, except I got a lot of friends who are in the program with me, and a lot of guys superior to me. Uh, who really put the pressure on me to write the book because they knew the story. They knew what happened and they felt that somehow the story of Apollo 15 needed to be told truthfully. Uh, and it finally kind of convinced me that I needed to do that because uh, the story of Apollo 15 is a story of betrayal by people and by the government. That's the thing that makes it a book that's different from just a space flight. Let me just take one part of that. Mm -hmm. You know about the cover incident after our flight? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think everybody knows about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, we, we, we did the 100 covers for Hermann Singer in Germany, and then, surprise, 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 up pops another 300 covers, which I didn't carry, which Jim Norman didn't carry. Um, and so we each got another 100 covers, okay? And I had carried some covers for what I, the guy I thought was a friend down in Miami. Uh -huh. uh, I carried 144 covers that were... Now, my 144 covers were in the manifest. Hmm. We had a manifest. We had these personal preference kits. All right. And we could, we could take stuff if it was light and small and that kind of thing. And, of course, other uh, Apollos had taken them... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So it, well, it happened all the way back to Mercury. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had all... Everything I had was on the manifest for my PPK. Uh, turns out that the 100 and the other 300 were not on anyone's manifest. Okay? And that's been a big issue, and you, you'll see that in the book. But anyway, for one reason or another, some of those covers hit the market about um, about four months after we flew. And, and, and it killed us. I mean, it was just, it was the end of us when that happened. And there was a lot of talk that uh, I was the one who did it all because I was, in fact, a stamp collector back in those days. And so it was a natural assumption on, 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 the, on the part of other people that I was the culprit and I did all this. So uh, I was asked to leave Houston. So I left Houston, went out to California to a research center, and I spent the last three years out there. So but James Irvin and... Jim retired. He was ready to retire. He, 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 he was going to retire anyway, but when the cover thing came up, that, that made his retirement about six months early, he said, fine, I'll go. But I thought um, Dave Scott, uh, all three of you were uh, involved in this in the same way. Of course. Yeah. But Dave Scott was the only one that was left in Houston. And he ended up becoming the director at Dryden Flight Research Center. Mm -hmm. But what happened after this all came out, they were going to do an investigation. And I got a letter from Chris Kraft, who was the director of the Manned Spacecraft Center back in those days, mm -hmm. saying, would you turn in the covers that you have mm -hmm. to me while we're going through this investigation, and you'll get them back when it's all over. Mm -hmm. So I sat and thought about it, and I said, hmm, that's kind of interesting. They're only interested in the covers. However, we had each carried 
something like 250 flags from all the countries in the world that were supplied by NASA uh -huh. uh, for us to carry. And they've been on the flight too, so they're as valuable as the covers. I, you know, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I really didn't understand why they were sorting out the covers. Mm -hmm. Well, they were sorting, they were, they were focusing on the covers because that's where all the noise was coming through covers. Mm -hmm. So I gathered up all of my stuff that I had in my personal preference kit and, mm -hmm. and, and itemized it and sent it up to Chris Craft with a little letter. And a couple of days later, I got everything back except the covers. And with a little letter, I said, you know, we don't really need this stuff. We're only interested in the covers. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange because somebody's missing the boat here. Well, that went on from September, like September, October 71 to July of 72. And in the meantime, in the spring, when the investigation was kind of partway through, and I could see that, that, that the finger was beginning to point at me a lot, when I had nothing to do with it except to agree to go along with this thing. Uh, I got a call from Deacon, he said, you're out. You gotta be out of the office next Monday. And uh, I, I refused to leave. Uh, I said, I'm not gonna leave. He said, you, you need to go back to the Air Force. I said, I won't go back to the Air Force. And I had talked to the Air Force, and they didn't have, they didn't have anything for me. And, of course, my name was kind of mud anyway. Uh, so that's when I when I finally worked out this job out at Ames Research Center in San Francisco, and I went out there for three years. But they got very worried about it, so they got they got everything from Apollo 16, they got everything from Apollo 17, mm -hmm. and they had it storage until until quote the investigation was over. Well, the investigation never concluded. But what happened in the meantime is they took all of those covers and they put them in the National Archives in safekeeping. And there was no way to get them out. Uh -huh. They were going to be there forever. Right. Okay. Well, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know, uh, we do have a democratic society. <laughs> you just you, you don't do things like that uh, uh, unless you're a fascist or a communist or something. You can't just take somebody's property without due process. That's in our constitution. Mm -hmm. So I sued in '83. I sued the U.S. government. Nobody else would do it. Right. I figured I had enough of this nonsense, you know. Uh -huh. So I sued the U.S. government, and that was kind of an interesting one. I, I went to several attorneys, and, no, and, and very few of them wanted to take the case mm -hmm. because most attorneys in the states have political connections, and they're very concerned about that kind of thing. I said, yeah. so I got I got uh, my lawyer down in Palm Beach. So we put together a program. Right. We filed suit in Palm Beach Federal Court. Uh -huh. They had to come to us to go to court. We filed the lawsuit, and the Department of Justice was kind of fighting it, but not really. I mean, they were kind of wishy-washy about it. And NASA was holding firm because the Senate Space Committee was beating on NASA that never allowed those covers to get out. Right. Okay, so NASA was kind of caught in the middle. Well, one thing led to another, and uh, we, we, we filed for trial. We wanted to have a jury trial as a... As, as, Pre-trial workup. Lawyers do things called depositions. Right. <laughs> okay? So we worked and worked and worked and we had depositions galore. Right. Our first our first deposition was going to go to President Nixon, then the Vice President Agnew, and then to Senator John Glenn. And we're going to go right down the list of everybody who ever had anything, any any connection with the space program at all. Because our thinking was that every single one of those people we had on deposition mm -hmm. had artifacts that had been in space. Right. What were we going to do with them? Right. If you keep them as a public, yeah. 
And so that blew that blew them right out of the water. We, I got a letter from the from the, uh, the the guy at the Department of Justice who was running the case and mm-hmm. said, "Okay, we give up. You get everything back. The only thing we want is that it's a no it's a no fault agreement, so that you can't come back and sue us." And I and I, and, and I talked to my attorney. I said, "I don't care. All I want to do is get this stuff back and get this all cleared up." Now I feel kind of sorry that I didn't sue him because I could have sued him for damages. We probably would have won because they violated my constitutional rights, and they knew it. So we got them all back. But I became the funnel for all that. So I gave out all the stuff to all the other guys, and they all got it back. So that's, but that's kind of what this book is about because even though I went after the government and all that, even the news people at that point, they didn't care. They could care less. All they cared about was the big scandal when it occurred. In fact, I ran into a newspaper reporter, Tommy O'Toole, who was hot on us when the cover incident came out. And I saw him the day I got the covers back out of the archives. We were, we were in a little Irish pub splitting up all the covers, and Tommy O'Toole walked in, and I ran over to him and I said, okay, Tommy, you know, you wrote all that crap, that bad stuff. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it would have been, you know, 12 years ago. Okay, here's what's happened, and now I'm expecting you to write a, an article exonerating us. Mm-hmm. And he never did. They didn't care. And there must have been, uh, when you're doing a biography, you must have come across somebody you hadn't seen for a while or read a letter that you hadn't seen for a while. It must have been a trip down memory lane. Is there well, it is in a way. Uh, we've had to check and double check and get paperwork to support everything we've said in the book. And, and uh, yeah, there's some, there's some people that, uh, that have been contacted uh, um, and, and I've just been absolutely amazed at the support I've gotten from the other astronauts. Right. Yeah, really bad. You know, on the cover of the book is going to be Neil Armstrong's uh, endorsement. Oh. Right on the cover of the book. Excellent. And then I got Buzz Aldrin, I got Mike Collins, who was the CMP, uh, Tom Stafford, Dick Gordon, Bill Anders. I mean, I go right down the list. And, and all these guys are, you know, endorsing the book. Finally, what's next? What are you planning on next? Anything else after You know, I haven't looked beyond the rest of this year right now. I know there'll be a be an interesting book tour that we'll be doing, starting out at the Smithsonian on July 29th. And then I've got some other rather interesting places to visit. As an example, I got an invitation from Google. Uh-huh. They got some seven or eight thousand engineers they want me to talk to. And they'll help with a book and put it on YouTube and stuff like that. So there's some things that are really coming along that are going to be kind of interesting and fun to do. Uh, and I think once we're through that and the book tours kind of slow down, uh, I think I'm going to play a little golf. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an excellent <laughs> yeah. Um Al Worden, that's been fabulous talking to you about so many different things. Uh, the book's launched on the 26th of July. 26th of July. And if you're back here in the UK, I'd love to meet up with you. I will be back, and I look forward to seeing you. you We'll do that. Appreciate that. Goodbye. Thank you. Today's quote is from Al during this interview. It's a reminder that space exploration is not only about cutting-edge technology and breathtaking adventure, but it is, above all, a human endeavor. The story of Apollo 15 is a story of betrayal by people and by the government.